Now, one of the biblical scholars came near and heard them, the other biblical scholars, the chief priests and the elders, discussing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scholar asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Holy One, our God. The Holy is one. You shall love the Holy One, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the biblical scholar said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and besides God, there is no other. And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that the scholar answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the reign of God. After that, no one dared to ask Jesus any question. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. I don't know about you all, but I'm still like ugh, feeling that um, song from Out of Passing of the Peace. You might not like her by Maddie Zane. There's something so powerful about that song, but also about hearing it in church, um, including with its coarse language and its, uh, its confessional nature. I think there's something so difficult about loving yourself, appreciating yourself, honoring yourself. And some of that can get easier in religious and spiritual community when we see the divine in ourselves and one another. But in the context of spiritual trauma, and the context of religious hierarchy, purity culture, and shame, Many of us have been wounded by those religious and spiritual spaces, making it harder for us to love and honor and like ourselves. In today's scripture, Jesus talks about how the core of the gospel, the core of the teachings, is to love God and love neighbor as self. Now, the love of self is sort of taken for granted there. You know that phrase that idea that you can't love someone else until you learn to love yourself? I think it's a little bit of a bind, right? I know that I have learned to love myself much more effectively, in part through the love I've poured out to others. So I don't want to make it so cut and dry, right? That you can't love anyone else well until you love yourself perfectly. That's just another trap. But there is a reciprocal nature between the ability to love someone outside of you, the ability to love your God in whose image you were created, and your commitment to love yourself. So much of our energy gets poured outward, but if we have no solid base, if we don't begin from a place of self-sustaining love and honor, if we can't take in the love from God and from others, then we're trying to live, to breathe on recycled air. We need that foundation of love. This passage is, uh, is one of the better known 
in the scriptures. And if you haven't heard it yet, no worries. But this is a really famous passage where Jesus is asked, essentially, what's the point of all of this? What's the most important? And in this context, in the book of Mark, uh, he's talking with a bunch of biblical scholars. They're, they're called scribes, and that can be kind of confusing, because when we talk about scribes kind of post-Jesus time, we're talking about scribes that are like copying manuscripts and things like that of the Bible before the printing press. Um, that's not what they mean here. Scribes in the context of the Bible would mean scholars. These are people who have studied, who are internalizing the scriptures, who have given their lives to understanding. And so, of course, in the same way that if you get a bunch of philosophy students together or a bunch of like literature nerds together and they all start talking about their area of passion, they're going to debate What's the best? What's the most important? What's the heart of this thing to which we have dedicated our lives and our community? Now, there are some passages in the scriptures where Jesus is in these like contentious debates. This isn't one of them. This is a group of people just adoring God, adoring the law, adoring the, the Jewish spiritual path and saying, what is the heart of all of this? And as they're talking, the scholars are impressed by Jesus. They're like, wow, you really keyed into something here. So one of them asks, all right, Jesus, what do you think? What do you think is the, the most important law? And Jesus' answer, a lot of us think of it as like the core of the Christian gospel. And I want you to know that in addition to being that, it is also an extremely Jewish answer. It's like the most Jewish answer Jesus could have given because his answer is two prayers, one that kind of feeds into the other that were meant to be said multiple times a day. The Shema, which is the Jewish confession of faith, which says there is one God, love the Lord your God. And the Ahavta, which is kind of a, a reiteration of to love. God is one, love God. This is something that they would have said to themselves, to God, privately, publicly, over and over, every day for their whole lives. And so Jesus isn't, isn't like, you know, breaking anything open here in a dramatic, I'm introducing a new concept kind of way. Jesus is saying, you know the heart of the gospel. You know the heart of the good news. You know the heart of the Torah. You say it every day. And we're actually going to listen uh, to a recording of the Ahavta. So um, do we have that primed to go? All right, there's going to be a translation into English. It's going to be sung in Hebrew. So let's listen to the Ahavta. Bam, Beshiftecha, Bebetaka, 
music in there too. (laughs) So those words have been spoken and sung by communities for thousands of years. This prayer, this prayer that declares that God is God and that we love God, that we are called to love God. Now we got that recording uh, from templesinai.org and they said this about it. It might occur to you that the commandment to love God in this passage is difficult to understand and fulfill. How is it possible to order someone to have an emotion? How can love be commanded? Well, here's one way to understand the commandment. We recognize that when people love each other, they do things for each other that deepen the love between them. For example, when I prepare a meal for the person I love, or when I wash the dishes after the meal, I do so in part because I know that it will make my partner happy. That makes me happy too, because I enjoy meeting the needs of the person I love. Doing things like that makes me love my partner even more. It is the same with our relationship with God. When we do what we know God wants from us, the mitzvot, the blessings, the commandments, it makes God feel good, and it makes us feel good too. Doing mitzvot deepens the love we share with God. You may experience this yourself when you do something to help a person in need. It feels good to do things that are good, in part, because it makes you feel closer to God. This commandment is about acting in love towards God. And the example given here is a way to offer service, to be kind, to invest oneself in the presence of another, to offer yourself. And so the author is saying when we do that in our loving relationships, we grow in affection as well. That the commandment to love God is about an orientation not only to our choices, but to our attitudes. To say, I offer willingly, gladly, the gifts of my life so that I can be close to you, so that I can receive gifts back from you as well. So Jesus, when he's being asked, what is the point of all of this? What is the most important? He centers love, the love of God, the commitment to God, in a super Jewish way. 
But here's where Jesus then comes in with what I would consider an act of deconstruction and construction. We talk about deconstruction as though it's always this shattering event. When really, any conversation where we revisit the principles upon which we have agreed and play with them, create new with them, twist them, take a turn on what it was before, we are doing deconstruction and construction. Jesus makes two notable constructions here. First, even in his recitation of the prayer, he alters it from the original scripture. Now, if you were paying extremely close attention, you might have noticed that when Jesus said it, he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. And in the Shema and the Adava, it the mind is not included. Now, this is because Jesus is being sort of culturally relevant, sensitive, shaped. Jesus is living in a world that is extremely influenced by Greek philosophy. And the Hellenization of his community means that he now has new language and concepts to think about how we can be present to God. The Greeks valued the mind and conceptualized it differently. And so Jesus is not dishonoring the text by adding to it and shifting it and changing the words. Jesus is more deeply communicating in his Hellenized culture this and the mind. Offer all of that. Commit all of that to love and to the love of God. But what he also does is he comes in with a second commandment. The second commandment, which in another telling of this story, Jesus said, this second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, we might think, twist! (laughs) Jesus is bringing in the new Christian material, right? Wrong. This is another super Jewish thing. Anyone want to guess what book of the Bible, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes from? Leviticus. It's in Leviticus. Leviticus, widely known as a huge bummer, has a bunch of good stuff in it. Leviticus, like most of the scriptures, is complicated, and we cannot throw it out without losing a lot of really incredible stuff. It's actually just one chapter, Leviticus 19, one chapter after the, the, the passage in Leviticus 18 that gets used to clobber queer people, right? So in Leviticus 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, hey, we need to link these two things together. What does it mean to love God? How do we do that? Because I think that for some folks deeply steeped in religious tradition, it feels easy to say like, oh, okay, yeah, keeping the commandments might mean practicing religious ritual. And certainly these scholars and scribes were deeply embedded in the temple system that was about, you know, sacrifices and worship um, and this kind of priestly relationship to God. All of these uh, festivals and, um, and sacrifices, it was the religious practice to which they were attuned, right? So Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God. And they're like, oh yeah, of course. You know, keep the commandments, go, uh, you know, keep the Sabbath, make your sacrifices. And Jesus says, yeah. the commandments that I'm talking about are contained within the heart of Torah, 
the, the commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And when we go to con- conceptualize what that means in the context of Leviticus 19, we see a lot of very explicit instructions about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, verse 9, it talks about how when you harvest, when you've been farming and you harvest, you are commanded not to harvest everything. You're supposed to leave the edges of your field. Um, If you have a vineyard, you're supposed to leave all the grapes that have fallen. And it explains why. It says, leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. Right? It goes on. It says you must not steal or deceive or lie to each other. It talks about how not to invoke God's name in order to cause harm. It goes on and says, do not oppress your neighbors. Do not oppress your neighbors. I don't know how much more explicit we can get than that. Do not oppress your neighbors or rob them. Uh, rob them seems so straightforward, but it turns out talking about wage theft because the next sentence is, do not withhold a hired laborer's pay overnight. So a worker having pay withheld is considered oppression of the neighbor. That is not loving your neighbor. It goes on to detail ways to be loving to people with disabilities. Do not insult a deaf person or put some obstacle in front of a blind person that could cause them to trip. Instead, fear your God, I am the Lord. It says, do not hate your neighbor. And right next to it, it says, also rebuke them. (laughs) And do not become responsible for their sin. So we're given a model that says, hey, you are supposed to call each other in. You aren't supposed to stand by when somebody does something to cause harm. And as you rebuke, do not hate. So we have some pretty explicit instructions on what it means as it concludes in verse 18, you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when Jesus is saying the second most important commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, he's invoking all of this. And that is why the scholar responds and says, yeah, that is so much more important. That is so much more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And and you feel the weight of this conversation as these folks who are really committed to the temple system, who are really embedded in a system of religious ritual and identity, are saying like, yeah, that's great. And the heart of what we're doing here isn't about that at all. Love of neighbor is demonstrating love of God. And so you have in this exchange, if I could summarize, them saying, hey, what is this about? Jesus says, love God, not how you think. Not through religious ritual, not through getting all all the, the laws right, not through your cultural identity, but by the justice, by the love of your neighbor as yourself, creating a community in which all are valued and cared for, making dinner for your partner, making dinner for someone you don't know is an act of love for God. And the scholar says, you're so right. Loving God by loving neighbor as you love yourself is just so much more important than any of the elaborate rituals that we so identify with in our tradition. And Jesus is like, yeah, 
You're getting close. So the tradition itself in this context is gorgeous. Jewish tradition is beautiful and powerful, and these scholars love it for good reason. It is meant as a pathway to love. Rituals, laws, commandments are given to us not for the sake of themselves, which is the point of this exchange. It is not the ritual itself that declares love for God or that offers love for God. It's the ritual that brings us into practice to teach us how to love, to remind us that we are called to love, to bring us back into our bodies and our communities and our relationship to God so that we can powerfully serve and love one another and therefore God. So these religious practices are means to an end. God doesn't want burnt sacrifices or offering for the sake of itself. It is so that we might be more loving. God is giving us a way to show love to God, to neighbor, and to self. And we get so caught up in the particularities of religious identity that we miss the picture. Today, yesterday, I think technically in the squad page, a community member shared that they weren't going to be here at church today. And it was a really beautiful post. They had decided to spend this morning with a loved one that they had a, a unique opportunity to see. And they shared how in a previous life, in a previous community, they would have been shamed and guilted for that. That the only appropriate place to be on a Sunday morning is church. They had been coerced into coming to church, even at the expense of these other relationships. But today, they chose to see that friend, to miss church, to share love. Jesus' interpretation here absolutely honors that choice, to skip church, to be present in love to someone you care about. It is the love, the practice of love, and the cultivation of love that our whole tradition is for. So going to church is intended to cultivate your ability to love. Forcing someone to go to church doesn't really accomplish that. And disallowing someone from missing church in order to show love is just exactly backwards from the point. Our obligations are to love, not to ritual, not to rules, not to institutions, not even to cultural traditions. But there's another danger here. There's another danger that happens when we elevate religious ritual over love itself. And that is cultivating religious supremacy. This idea that any one set of rituals or rules is correct and everything else is wrong. That there's only one cultural way to express love towards God's self and neighbor. The only way to love God is to follow this set of rules, guidelines, and practices. If loving God, loving neighbor, and loving self is core to the Torah, then many peoples and traditions and religions are able to fulfill that, not just Jews. And if loving God, neighbor, and self is core to the gospel, then many peoples and many traditions and many religions are able to fulfill that, not just Christians. And so an elevation of any particular ritual or text or, or set of rules is bypassing the heart, which is evidenced in so many spiritual traditions. 
love of the divine, love of neighbor, love of self. These things are what truly honors God. And trying to coerce other people into a particular tradition, set of rituals, or cultural identity is not only abusive and colonizing, but it is also a complete misunderstanding of the point of those rituals. We are called not to the ritual itself, but to the cultivation of love. Now, Jesus is laying some really radical groundwork here. And I think that he builds on that even more when we come to Matthew 25. This is when Jesus says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you have not done for me. Jesus is setting the groundwork to say that loving people, loving your neighbor, means loving the least of these. That is to say, those with the least power. And that failure to love those with the least power is failure to love God. And loving God is the heart of the gospel. So who gets left out of the definition of neighbor? When we say, love your neighbor as yourself, who gets excluded from that category of neighbor? Will Gaffney, whose, uh, whose work we're building on through this series, she talks about how love in this context was often associated with covenant, legal commitment, And a covenant was a commitment to care for one another, to be committed to one another's well-being. And the framework of covenant in our scriptures is usually between God and men. Sometimes that's all of Israel, but it is kind of assumed to be the men. Sometimes that's with individual men in the scriptures. And so she notes that women get left out of this systemically, repeatedly, generationally. She writes, it does not appear that Christians have historically understood women as neighbor. If our gospel proclamations are not true for the most marginalized among us, women, non-binary folk, trans folk, gender non-conforming folk, and LGBTQIA folk, then our gospel is not true. If our gospel proclamations are not true for the most marginalized, for the least of these, then our gospel is not true. Now that is a weighty way of saying exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 25. The love that we fail to show to those with the least power, we fail to show to God, and we have lost the heart of the gospel. In this country, it's surprisingly recent that women have been included in a lot of legal frameworks. It wasn't until 1974, so there are several people in our community who were alive during this time. It wasn't until 1974 that women were guaranteed the right to a credit card in their own name, a bank account without a husband's signature, or a mortgage. Like, can you imagine, I mean, I know for some of us it'd be just really nice to think, even think about getting a mortgage, but, but can you imagine living so recently in a world where women were not allowed to get a credit card without a man signing off on it? That feels to me like forever ago. Like, that can't possibly have been so recently. But it was, it was in the 70s. And 
we have to understand then that when we are working to fulfill the, the commandments of God, when we are working to love neighbor, that some of these things, some of these wounds that we are trying to heal in our communities are so fresh and have been in the midst of harm for so long. We have a long road ahead of us to heal. And going back into the scriptures, we see that this commandment to heal this, this commandment to advocate for those who were the most marginalized, in particular in that context, women, it's not Jesus who's introducing this. It's Leviticus. Leviticus is calling out care for workers, for the poor, for people with disabilities. The prophets will not shut up about women. Widows, orphans, poor, foreigners. Right? This is the call. This has always been the call to fight for those with the least power. Now, everyone here in this community is here in part because you have felt hate directed at you and or people you love. There are people who target our family events. There was another shooting this weekend of black folks in Jacksonville, Florida, by a young white shooter motivated by anti-black hate. It is a struggle just to live for so many in this country, in this world, let alone be loved, let alone be honored, let alone be a full, uh, honored member of the body of humanity with exactly what they deserve. You deserve complete and utter connection with all things and people. How do we fulfill the law? How do we be good Christians? We fight for our neighbors. That's what shows God love. And if church and music and communion and offering help you do that, do it. Do it again and again. Remind yourself that you are not alone. Remind yourself that you are in a tradition that has been calling for justice over and over again for thousands of years. Remind yourself that there is a communal pathway to God and to neighbor and back to self. Remind yourself through ritual and practice. Be a part of it. But the point is not attendance in church. The point is not the offering that you make. The point is the cultivation of love, the orientation to goodness, the building of the kingdom. And it can be so overwhelming. Where do I start? Where do I start in a world that is so messed up? Well, each of us has inside our lived experience a constellation of identities some of which are marginalized, and some of which are privileged. And so I invite you to contemplate from your identities of privilege, whatever they may be, to consider the ways that you can offer love to those who are marginalized in those similar identities. And from those parts of your identity that have been marginalized, those parts of you that have been stripped from power, those parts of you that have been dishonored by the wounds of this world, you must begin with loving yourself. You must offer love to yourself. Seek out love from others. Celebrate those parts of you. 
And honoring yourself is an act of honoring God. How do we do this? It is an orientation. Yes, it is action. Yes, it's hitting the streets. Yes, it's policy work. Yes, it is the, the big systemic change that we are committed to. And it is an orientation of the heart. I am worthy of love. My neighbors are worthy of love. God is worthy of love. And I commit myself to God, to neighbor, and to myself. And I seek first in God, in my neighbors, and in myself those parts that have been lost, those parts that have been dishonored, those parts that have been denigrated, and I offer them kindness. I offer them celebration and joy and power and beauty. We're going to end today with a loving-kindness meditation. Now, this is a meditation that often begins with the self, offering loving-kindness for the self, and then radiating outward. But because so many of us have been stripped of dignity in various parts of ourself, because so many of us have a hard time, actually, connecting love to self, because we've been alienated, from those most marginalized parts of our own identity, we're going to do it backwards. We're going to start with love of God, come into love of neighbor, and end on love of self. And I really want you to celebrate those parts of you that you have been cut off from. And even if you think you are a person of enormous privilege, and you may be, there are parts of you through our misogynist and patriarchal and white supremacist culture, through our ableism, through our hatred for softness, there are parts of you that have been lost. And I encourage you to honor them today. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we invite you to be with us, to shower us with love as we seek to love you right back. God, we know that we can only love because we are brought into being by your love. May it work its way through us as we offer it back to you, to others, and ourselves. God, may you be well. God, may the whole creation be well. God, may humanity be loved. God, may peoples in all places experiencing oppression be loved, be honored and be met with kindness. God, may my neighbors of many and various identities be loved, be honored, and be met with kindness. God, may I and the most vulnerable or lost or hated parts of myself be loved, be honored, be met with kindness, be celebrated and lifted up in your name. Amen.